Bismillahirrahmanirrahim Wa ashadu anna la ilaha illallah Wa anna muhammadan rasulullah Alhamdulillah alladhi anzala ala abdihi kitaba wa lam yaj'al lahu iwaja Ahmaduhu subhanah وَاسْتَعِينُوا بِهِ وَاسْتَغْفِرُوا وَأَتُوبُوا إِلَى اللَّهِ مِنْ شُرُورِ أَنفُسِنَا وَمِنْ سَيِّئَاتِ أَعْمَالِنَا فَإِنَّهُ مَنْ يَهْدِهِ اللَّهِ فَهُوَ الْمُهْتَدِ وَمَنْ يُضْلِلْ فَلَنْ تَجْدَ لَهُ وَلِيًّا مُرْشِدًا وأصلي وأسلم وأبارك على حبيب المصطفى خاتم النبيين المرسل رحمة للعالمين وعلى آله وأصحابه وعلى من اتبعوا بإحسان إلى يوم الدين It is not an exaggeration to say that we human beings, our intellects and our psyches are a product of numerative of, of numerous cumulative narratives that we have received at different parts in our lives. The fabric of human consciousness is formed by narratives. Even more simply and directly, the fabric of human consciousness is formed by stories. Stories from the past, stories from the present, stories upon stories upon stories that form what we define as our reality. The way we understand things, the way we associate and relate to values the way that we are entitled or that we feel entitled to feel or not to feel. When we look at the present Muslim condition, the way we are as Muslims in our day and age, There is always, whether we ask ourselves this, this question explicitly or we are more implicit and subtle or indirect about it, we are often wondering what ails 
the present Muslim condition. What has injured the present Muslim psyche, the present Muslim intellect, so that in the heart of the soul of every Muslim is a sense of grievance and sadness about our world. The way that that manifests is in numerous multi-layered, complicated way. But fundamentally, what are the narratives that form our consciousness? What are the narratives that make us feel confident or not confident about our tradition? What are the narratives that we've heard and picked up here and there that makes, make us at peace with who we are or that makes us not at peace with who we are? What are the narratives that we picked up and absorbed and digested here and there that make us clear about our purpose in life, our goal, what we should be doing, what we ought to be doing, or, or not? This is precisely why it is so critical that as Muslims we understand and we actively construct our own narratives. In other words, that as Muslims we study and understand our history and we do so with a sense of urgency because we must understand that the way that we comprehend and absorb our history in turn defines our realities. In this world and in the world to come, in the present moment and in the future, This is precisely why I have increasingly planned in my khutbahs to talking about examples from the past because it dawns on you as a teacher, as an educator, how ill-informed or even how uninformed Muslims are about the, their own narratives. We as Muslims pick up impressions about who we are. And if you ask yourself what defines who you are, 
Well, what defines who you are is your basic moral attitude towards the sum total of the past that created you. We are byproducts of our history, but not of our history as it exists in some objective world. Rather, our history as we understand it, as we comprehend it. Inshallah, this Jum'ah, I want to discuss just a couple of fairly minor events in human history, in Muslim history that ought to give us considerable pause and ought to make us reflect upon what we know of our past and how we know it and why we know it and what would be needed for us to mend to mend the injuries to our understanding of our tradition, to mend our relationship with our tradition. The reason I have picked the narratives that I will talk to you about is because I'm fairly sure that most Muslims would have not heard about them. And yet, inshallah, you will see how significant these precedents that I will discuss are for what defines us as Muslims and what could define our relationship to our tradition. The first comes from a figure that, a figure who is not famous in Islamic history. But yet someone who played a very large role in the spread and the crea and the birth of Islam in the formative in the formative moments of this religion. His name is Thumama bin Athal al Hanafi. Thumama bin Athal al Hanafi was He's, he's, he has the title or Hanafi, not because he was a follower of the Hanafi school of thought, but because he was from the tribe of Abu Hanifa, the tribe in Yamama, in today's Yemen. Asama bin Athal was a tribal chief in one of the tribes the important Arab tribes of Yamama in Yemen. And he existed at the time of 
the birth of the Islamic message at the time of the Prophet At the time, Samama bin Yasal was a man of considerable wealth and means. His tribe was famous for farming wheat and exporting, selling that wheat to Mecca. And because of their wheat exports to Mecca, in many ways, they were the bread, bread basket of Mecca. Mecca had a very close relationship with Bin Athal, with Yamama bin Athal, bin Athal, because of the agriculture of Thumama's tribe and because of a long-existing business relationship between the tribe of Thumama and Mecca. Anyway, at the time, this is before the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, and at the time were an increasing number of Arab tribes that were allied to Mecca in one form or another, were conspiring to destroy the community in Medina, to destroy the Prophet and his followers, and were increasingly alarmed about the spread of the Islamic message, and were forming various alliances to try to destroy the nascent Muslim community in Medina. So, at what point? At one point, Thumama starts communicating with various tribes in Yemen and communicates with Mecca, and they are they start forming various plans to launch a decisive and stealth attack against. Muslims in Medina hoping that this would be finally the battle to finish off the Islamic message once and for all. The Prophet because he simply didn't rely on his Iman but did his due diligence before he would ask Allah for help, the Prophet always did his part. Always exerted the effort that a Muslim must exert before they can dare ask God for assistance. So part of that due diligence was that the Prophet ﷺ had a fairly complicated network of informants that would convey news diligently to the Muslims in Medina 
hopefully so that they can know who is conspiring against them and who is planning some type of military action against them. The news reaches the Prophet ﷺ through Muhammad bin Maslama that Thumama bin Athal and his tribe are planning a military campaign, a stealth, surprise military campaign against Muslims in Medina. And as the Prophet often did, he would create a military force that would launch a preemptive strike in order to shock and neutralize his enemies before they're able to inflict injury upon Muslims. Despite the fact that Muslims at the time were quite weak. Anyway, so the Prophet sends Muhammad bin Maslama to launch a campaign against Thumama's tribe and that military campaign was very short-lived but it was widely successful. So successful that the tribal chief himself Thumama bin Athan is captured. He is captured and brought back to Medina. In Medina, there was a group of people that played a very important role in Islamic history that we Muslims today rarely hear about. And that is a group known as Ahlul Safwa or Ahlul Sufwa. These were the poorest Muslims, Muslim converts in Medina. These were people who were often former slaves, not always, but often former slaves who did not have property, who did not have trade or commerce, but at the same time, who from various reports that we know is that they practically lived either in the mosque, in the central mosque in Medina itself, or in very small, modest residences around the mosque. And what marked Ahl al-Safwa is that they would constantly meet in the mosque in Medina, eat their food in mosque in Medina, and turned their lack of wealth into a remarkable spiritual and moral and intellectual force but by always meeting in Medina to pray and to study the Quran and to do zikr, to supplicate God. In fact, 
الصوفيه صوفيزم traces its roots back to Ahl al-Sufwa. These are the real roots or original seeds of Sufism in Islam because of the studious dedication of Ahl al-Sufwa and the modesty of their means and the way that they led their lives was one in which they worked and and prayed and studied with little else else the prophet was known to spend an enormous time amount of time was al-sufwa the prophet loved them and they loved him and he would often go to them to share their meals. He would often know that they were often hungry. They were often didn't even have the means to feed themselves. And the Prophet would go out of his way to try to make sure that the al Sufwa had enough supplies, enough food, and would often dine with them would go and sit with them to eat his meals with Al-Sufwa. This, of course, did not include people like Osman ibn Affan, or Omar ibn Khattab, or Abu Bakr, or Ali ibn Abi Talib, because Osman and Abu Bakr and Omar and Ali ibn Abi Talib, as modest their means were, were considered the, their people who owned homes. And that in itself made them not part of Al-Sufwa because Al-Sufwa didn't even own homes. Anyway, so Thumama is captured and that's a tribal chief. What are they going to do with him? They decided to keep him in the main mosque where Al-Sufwa spent most of their days. Initially, they tied him as a war captive, they tied him to a pillar in the mosque to decide what to do with him. As a tribal chief, Thumama, of course, was very unhappy with the fact that he was captured and very unhappy with the fact that he is tied to a pillar in the mosque. But what Thumama was particularly unhappy about was the fact that those who fed him were the poorest element, were Ahl Sufwa, the people of Sufwa. They, they, they were the ones who supplied his meals. And Thumama was not used to the modest food that Ahl Sufwa consumed because they fed him from what they ate. And there are very interesting stories that when they present him with his dishes, he looks at it and he says, what is this? No meat, no fried things, no spicy things. This is very simple food. You want me, expect me to eat this? And he refuses to eat, at least for the first couple of days. And basically they say, that's what we have. This is the, th- this is the food we consume. And so we're, we're giving you from our own food. 
and he, he's in disbelief. How can you live this way? You, 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 you actually don't eat fancy food. This is very simple food. In fact, one of the dishes that were presented to him were basically wheat and milk, uh, which he thought was just, you know, I am a chief. Do you expect me to eat stuff like that? But being in a, tied to this pillar in the main mosque in Medina, he had he was he had an opportunity to watch Ahlus Sufwa pray and do dhikr. Yes, he shared their very modest food, which he didn't like, but he also had an opportunity to observe the way they spent their day. And Thumama was struck by something that as a tribal chief from Yamama, he could have, didn't comprehend before. These people come from various tribes and come from various ethnic backgrounds. And they are of very diverse races. There are the Abyssinian blacks. There are the Yemeni. There are the Romans. There are the Egyptians. There are the Shamis, the light-skinned Shamis from Aleppo, from Halab. And there are people who come from Basra. And they all sit together they pray to the, uh, together, they do dhikr together, they eat together, and they seem to be in a world of malakut. They are happy, the type of happiness that Thumama had not seen before. And they are tranquil and at peace with themselves in ways that Thumama didn't understand. And he would see the prophet, who for Thumama is a tribal chief, is the equivalent of a tribal chief. The prophet Muhammad come and sit with them, eat with them, joke with them, laugh with them, pray with them, study with them, in absolute humility and simplicity, without fanfare, without hypocrisy, without ostentatious behavior. Human beings as human beings in their simplest and most pure form. After a short period, the Prophet ﷺ tells Sumama, You are a captive of war. What do you think should be done with you? And the and Sumama says, I mean, it's the the the, the Arabic is always fascinating. In taktil taktil the karam. وَإِن تَعْفُوا تَعْفُوا عَنْ شَاكِرْ وَإِن كُنْتَ تُرِيدُ الْمَالِ فَسَلْ 
Basically, Sumama says, you know, if, if you kill me, then you, you've killed an honorable human being. If you release me, I will be grateful. But being a typical tribal chief, he said, the, 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 the heart of the matter, if you want money to release me, then name your price. My tribe will pay whatever price you, you state to obtain my release. The Prophet said, we don't want to kill you and we don't want your money. We're releasing you. This was the final straw to Thumama's re-observation of reality, a reality that Thumama had not been exposed to before. And Thumama is a bit of disbelief that Muslims, after having captured a tribal chief, are just going to release him for nothing. And his whole value system is in a bit of a shock because of what he observed among these Muslims. After a, sh a, a short period of time where he doesn't leave Medina, he comes to the Prophet and he says, I want to be a Muslim. I want to pronounce the Shahada and become a Muslim. Of course, the Prophet is very pleased with the fact that Sumama now wants to convert. And Sumama says, I want to be a Muslim and live with you in Medina now. The Prophet says, you know, if you, you're welcome to Islam, but if you really want to serve this religion, don't live with us in Medina. Become a Muslim and go back to your tribe. And spread Islam there, teach them about Islam. And Sumama reluctantly agrees. He knows that once he goes back to his own tribe, it's a, it's a difficult path to take because he will meet considerable resistance. And, but ultimately he understands that it is not about just his own life and what he does with his own life, that now that he has seen a moral example, that it is incumbent upon him to share this moral vision, the vision of what the Quran consistently describes as moving people from darkness to light with his own people. An interesting semi-literal event, sort of a footnote. Before Thumama leaves Medina, he is actually, and now he's, he had taken the Shahada and has washed and has, is learning how to pray. He is 
because as, as, a, as a celebration with this conversion to Islam, the women in Medina go out of their way to prepare a fancy meal for him. They, they go literally collect donations from various people to, to cook a nice meal. But when they present it to Thumama, Thumama actually eats nothing. And when they ask him, Thumama, you haven't eaten anything. From the first day you came here, you were complaining about the quality of food, and now we've given you nice food. You don't actually eat it. And Zumama's response, I'll read it in Arabic. It says, "Mimma ta'jabun, amin rajal akala awal al-nahar fi ma'iyya kafir, wa akala akhir al-nahar fi ma'iyya muslim." إن الكافر لا يأكل في سبعة في سبعة أمعاء وإن المسلم يأكل في معي واحد. He says, why are you surprised that I I don't feel like eating fancy food? A kafir, when I was not a Muslim, all I cared about is food and the taste of food. I wanted to fill my stomach. But that's the attitude of a kafir. The attitude of a Muslim is that they look at food as a necessity, not an object. I've lost my zeal for food once I've come to the light of this religion. But the story doesn't even end here. Sumana understands why the Prophet wants him to go back to his tribe in Yamama and teach them about Islam and not live in Medina. But Sumama was a famous businessman and he was well known in Mecca itself, although he's not a Meccan, but he was well known in Mecca. He supplied their wheat. So Sumama tells the Prophet before I go back home, can I go do Umrah? Can I visit the Kaaba? This will be the first time I visit the Kaaba as a Muslim rather than as a polytheist. And the Prophet says, okay, you have, I, I have no objection. So Tumama travels from Medina now, a freed, work, a freed man or from captivity. But Meccans don't know he's Muslim. And he goes to Mecca and he starts, he visits the Kaaba and he supplicates, he makes supplications. When Mecca overhears his supplications, they suspect that this man had converted to Islam. So the chiefs of Mecca confront the Mama and say, come here, what is this you're saying? This is what the type of stuff Muslims say. لَبَّيْكَ اللَّهُمَّ لَبَّيْكَ لَبَّيْكَ لَا شَرِيكَ لَكَ لَبَّيْكَ الْحَمْدَ لَكَ وَالْنَعْمَةَ لَكَ وَالْمُلْكُ لَكَ لَا شَرِيكَ لَكَ What is this? And he says, I am now a Muslim. Mecca is outraged and in fact so outraged that they assault him. They physically assault him and start beating him up. Sumama takes the beating and leaves Mecca 
going back to his tribe. What is the first thing he does in his tribe once he reaches the Amama? He tells his tribe from now on, we are not selling any wheat to Mecca. He had become a Muslim, but he was also physically assaulted in Mecca, and he is sufficiently upset and sufficiently hostile to his former allies of the past that he refuses to sell them any wheat. Sumama's decision causes an economic, the economic boycott by Sumama causes a complete upheaval in Mecca. They try to find an adequate source for their wheat other than the Yemeni tribe of Yamama, but all the alternative sources like Egypt are too expensive and they lead to inflation, so it causes a serious economic problem in Mecca. They meet, the Meccans meet, what do we do about this? Well, we've beaten up Sumama, he's now a Muslim, how can we, how can we deal with this situation? How can we deal with inflation that is now produced or the result of us importing wheat from somewhere else other than the close by Yemen? And they find that there is no other solution because they tried to appeal to Thumama to get him to change his mind. They even offer to pay a much higher price, but Thumama refuses. So what do they decide to do? They decide to send a message to the Prophet ﷺ to tell the Prophet, can you please tell Thumama to end the economic boycott? Now, understand that at this time, not only were Mecca and, Mu and Muhammad and Muslims of Medina at war, they were at war. But, moreover, Mecca had inflicted an economic boycott against Muslims in Medina that led to the near starvation and actual starvation and death of several Muslims, but to the near starvation of all Muslims. Mecca itself has imposed an economic boycott against Muslims that was horrendous in its consequences and that eventually led to Muslims leaving their homes and leaving their businesses in Mecca and migrating from Mecca to Medina. So when Mecca sends a letter to the Prophet this is the actual language of the letter. أَلَسْتَ تَزْعُمْ أَنَّكَ بُعِسْتَ رَحْمَةً لِلْعَالَمِينَ فقد قتلت الأباء بالسيف والأبناء بالجوع عهدنا بك وأنت تأمر بصلة الرحم وتحص عليها وإن ثماما قد قطع عنا ميرتنا وأضر بنا فإن رأيت أن تكتب إليه أن يخلي بيننا وبين ميرتنا فافعل 
The letter is very intriguing because it is haughty and arrogant. It tells the prophet, don't you say that you were sent as a mercy to humankind? But what is going on is leading to our, the starvation of our children. You always said that you honored your family ties and the ties of your kinship. So, if you see fit to ask Thumama to end the economic boycott, then please do so. Look at the arrogance and the haughtiness. It is a request, but not a request. It didn't say, please, please, have Thumama end the economic boycott. It says, well, you claim to be sent as a mercy to humankind. So if you see fit to end this economic boycott, please ask Thumama to end the economic boycott. Remarkably, the Prophet responds to this letter by writing Sumama and asking him to end the economic boycott of Mecca. To continue selling wheat to Mecca. Sumama had been busy spreading Islam since his conversion in Yamama. So Yamama, that tribe, will increasingly become Muslim and eventually become, for, for the most part, most of it, will become Muslim. But once he gets the letter from the Prophet ﷺ, he says, this is the request I cannot refuse. He forgets about his beating. He forgets about the grievances he has with Mecca and he restores the sale of wheat to Mecca. And there, there, there well, that's as much as we want to say about it. Pause and reflect upon the morality of that community that is able to impress an enemy stranger, a rich, haughty, spoiled man, is able to impress that man with their modesty, with their love for one another, with their solidarity, with their humility and and poverty so much so that the man becomes Muslim but even with their enemies there are moral limits to any military conflict or any hostility that Muslims have even with their worst enemies. The Prophet ﷺ did not initiate the economic boycott 
And there are reports that he didn't even know about it. But once he receives the letter, the logic is there. You've been sent as a mercy to humankind. And that has its own moral imperative. And so, although Muslims had suffered this economic boycott, they refused to inflict it upon others because of the fact that innocents, like children, like people who are not involved directly in the war, will suffer the consequences. Now, ask yourself, and this is the question that I always go back to, you might have been raised a Muslim. And I am sure that the vast majority of people who were raised Muslims had never heard of this story. You might have been converted to Islam, and I'm equally sure that as a convert, you've never heard in a Sunday school or a Sunday lecture anyone talk about this as part of the Sunnah of the Prophet. Let me very quickly tell you another story. Very quickly. You all, at one point or another, heard of the companion of the Prophet, Abu Hurairah. Abu Hurairah, after he had converted to Islam, was among the Ahl al-Safwa. He lived with Ahl al-Safwa. Poverty, but a detachment from the material, from the material seductions of this world. The people that the Prophet would spend a lot of time with. Abu Hurairah had a mother that he was very close to, loved very dearly. and cared a great deal about, but she was a kafir. She had not converted. And Abu Raira would consistently try to convince his mother to become a Muslim, and the way she would respond would to, was to insult and attack the Prophet And he would complain to his friends and his brethren that I have a hard time, because every time I ask my mother to be a Muslim, she just goes off saying bad things about the Prophet and what she says hurts me, so I don't want to hear it. And the Safwa, as I told you, were often hungry, truly hungry. You want to know how hungry? On one day, Abu Hurairah goes around Medina and the Prophet meets him and he says, where are you going? And he says, I am actually not sure. I'm trying to find food. The Prophet says, why? He says, the only thing that made me roam the streets right now is hunger. And the Prophet smiles and says, well, the only thing that's making me roam the streets now is hunger as well. Both are not like us. 
we're hungry, let's order something. Both are hungry and roaming to see if, <laughs> if their food supplies. The prophet then, someone delivers to the household of the prophet dates. So what does the prophet do? He takes the dates, he divides up the dates, two dates for each member of Ahl al-Safwa, and two dates for each wife of the Prophet, and two dates for the Prophet. Two dates. So the Prophet tells Ahl al-Safwa, take the two dates, add water to them, boil them in water, and eat them, it will fill up your stomach. The Prophet ﷺ notices that Abu Hurairah took one date, put it in his pocket, and the other date he went to cook. Look, this is a leader who has that level of sensitivity. He notices who actually consumed the two dates and who saved up one date. So he says, Abu Hurairah, why, why did you save one day this prophet for my mother I consumed one day the other day for my mother who is not a Muslim the prophet smiles and says no eat up your two dates we'll give your mother two dates so he goes and he gives his mother two dates and Abu Huraira gets to consume his two dates Very simple incident. The Prophet ﷺ didn't say your mother is a kafra, she doesn't count. The Prophet ﷺ didn't say your mother is a kafra, why is she living in Medina with us? These people who would fill their stomachs not with a nice sandwich and fries, they would fill their stomachs with two dates boiled in water. This is why they created the civilization that they created. You either are a slave to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You are either bonded in servitude to Allah or you are bonded in servitude to material wealth. Either your God is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and when your God is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala your God are moral values. Values that we as human beings share with each other or your God will be materiality and the mighty dollar. Either you exist in a state of Tawheed where your life centers about around God and the moral values that embody the divine attributes or you exist in a state of shirk 
where you worship, in your state of shirk, you worship material wealth and the dollar, and your relationship to moral values are tenuous. You take them and leave them as convenience dictates. But the critical thing that I underscore again is our relationship to our tradition. Again, I am sure that as Muslims, many of us have spent their entire life as Muslims, but were never taught very straightforward and very simple narratives that could construct their entire moral being, their entire consciousness, their entire relationship to their faith. Where is the deficiency? Why is it that we don't know our tradition? Why is it that we think we know our tradition and we arrogantly have an attitude as if, yes, I know it, and I'm disappointed by it. If you are disappointed by it, it's because you don't know it. Even if it is not your fault that you don't know it, it is your fault that you have not committed your existence to finding the cause for the disease of ignorance that we exist in and the solutions. Imagine if young Muslims 30 years ago, from the time at least in the 80s, where as a young man I was talking about the same issues, if those Muslims who grew up to have careers back then, all these young people in the youth group and all these youth who grew up, went to school, graduated, now have illustrious careers and have made it, at least in Southern California, a lot of them are wealthy now. Imagine if these people would have remained committed and would have 20 years later, 30 years later, committed their wealth to funding the type of educational institutions that would teach our youth, their children or their grandchildren, about Islam and what Islam and Islamic tradition really is, and to bring qualified, competent teachers to teach our new generation about our faith, not engineers and doctors and whatever else, people who teach Sunday school in their extra time. Imagine if when we said 30 years ago things need to be fixed if we were actually honest and dedicated. The type of dedication that we often observe in the narratives of the early companions of the Prophet the people who actually made Islam a moral force in this universe. Just imagine. Imagine where we would be today. 
instead of our children suffering the consequences of Islamophobia left and right, and their intellects and their psychologies are incapable of responding because they simply don't know. They don't know their tradition. بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على محمد النبي المرسل الأمين خاتم النبيين المرسل رحمة للعالمين وعلى آله وأصحابه ومن تبع بإحسان إلى يوم الدين morality is indivisible. Every time there is an evil that you are aware of that falls upon anywhere in this earth, something demonic occurs. And rest assured that what is demonic leaves a demonic imprint. And demonic imprints are like infections. They contaminate the atmosphere, poison the earth and space. And turn the environment toxic. That is the nature of evil. Unless you clean it. Unless evil finds those who are willing to confront it. To clean after it. It will leave an imprint. It will poison. It will become toxic. And it will inflict further injury and claim more victims. That is why in Islam, Allah repeats so often, and the Prophet ﷺ repeats so often, the duty of moral uprightness, ethical vigilance, and your obligation to advocate and teach and act against moral failures. Something that I want to underscore because it is a major moral failure of our day and age. One is very old news. Yet again, another evil, another toxicity, another betrayal. Israel wants to confiscate more territory in the West Bank. As if the Palestinians haven't suffered enough. And one of the things that just struck me, that came out from the State Department, from Trump's administration, was said, you know, Arabs didn't do anything 
Muslims didn't do anything when we moved the embassy to Jerusalem. All the claims about how this is going to outreach the Muslim world turned out to be exaggerated. So, you know, the same. We, Israel will just claim more lands, disin, disinherit more Muslim, more Palestinians, and Muslims will not do anything. And you know what? They're right. Because Muslims have become accustomed to meeting evil with utter apathy. While you have so many American Jews that pick up, these are people who are highly educated, who could be doctors and lawyers and bankers in the U.S. or in New York making thousands and thousands of dollars each year. They pick up and they decide to go be settlers in the West Bank, making a fraction of what they would have made in New York living a far more modest life out of commitment to an idea, a principle. In my view, that it is an immoral principle, the principle that we must settle this land and colonize this land, even if it means throwing Palestinians off the land, but it's commitment and dedication. While on the other hand, we have these new Muslims coming up that say, why should Palestine be a cause? Why should we care? Even if Palestinians were not Muslim, it's the moral principle. People who have their land taken away and they become disinherited and rendered homeless as they have been for the past 60 years. Leave alone Jerusalem and its critical place for the Muslim psyche and Muslim morality. But the second major moral infraction is the Holocaust that is being committed by the Chinese government, the Holocaust, against Chinese Muslims. Of course, many of you have heard when, what's his name, wrote a book, Bolton, Bolton my, uh, Michael Bolton, John Bolton. John Bolton. John Bolton revealed in his most, recent book that Trump told the Chinese president that it's a good idea to intern Muslims and put them in concentration camps. And I believe that because Trump has made clear from the very beginning his disdain and his absolute hate for Muslims. And yet Trump has found Muslims around the world that celebrate him and welcome him. From Egypt to Saudi Arabia to the Emirates to even the United States. This is someone who says, 
I spit on you. I spit on your God. I spit on your prophet. I hate who you are and what you stand for. And yet, as a Muslim, you say, Oh, we're fine. You are Allah's will. What can we do? Allah will that you be the president, so we have to accept you. Compare these Muslims to the Muslims of the past. Muslims of the past were layered, had moral complexity. We wage war against, and in fact, capture the, the chief of a tribe who threaten us. But at the same time, we observe moral limits in the way we conduct conflict. The enemy who can see us strong and powerful and resolute when it comes to safeguarding who we are, once we've captured the enemy, he sees that we're moral human beings, so morally beautiful that this person converts to Islam. But the idea, anyway, that Trump, our government, and, and I tell you right away that China would not have built these concentration camps for the Uyghur Muslims. These camps of human trafficking and forced labor, it would not have happened if from the beginning they found that the United States and major business partners like Saudi Arabia and the Emirates and Egypt and Turkey and Iran and Qatar and every Muslim country were resolute in that you cannot do this to fellow Muslims. And that if you do this to fellow Muslims, there would have been severe consequences. I put it before you, is it racism? Is it because we Muslims are racist? Is it because these Muslims are Chinese, Asian, so we don't think of them as real Muslims? I might be tempted to say yes if it hadn't been for the fact that we've done the same with Palestinians who are Arab. So is it that we are just losers across the board? Or is there, and this is something we must ask and confront, or is there an element of racism in the way we think of the Muslims of China? These are millions of people placed in concentration camps, women who are raped, men who are executed and beaten, organs which are harvested, children who grow up in labor camps. And we Muslims have not even been successful in instituting an economic boycott of the products that come from where these labor camps are. Recently, Trump signed the Uyghur Human Rights Policy Act 
you know what? It turns out that that policy act, that recent legislation that Trump, or order that Trump signed, is largely useless. Why is it useless? Because it simply requires that the U.S. report on the condition of Muslims in these concentration camps where they are murdered and raped day, every single day for simply saying the Shahada or for praying or for fasting or are not even allowed to read the Quran. After Congress reports, the president then decides whether to impose sanctions. And the president has not decided to impose sanctions. There is already a statute, congressional law, that did what that recent executive order mandates. Same thing. But Trump had not chosen to impose any economic sanctions because of these concentration camps upon China since he's come to power. And so this executive order doesn't do anything. So the fact that Trump then said, well, you know, it's not true that I told the Chinese president it's a good idea to have these concentration camps for Muslims See, because I signed this executive order, well, the executive order you've signed does nothing. Does nothing, because you did not choose to impose any economic sanctions on anyone. And according to the Wall Street Journal, Trump again, once again, cites U.S. economic interests as justification for failure to impose any real or even not real economic sanctions. At the same time that we impose economic sanctions on Iran, crippling economic sanctions, and no one is really sure why anymore. Why do we impose economic sanctions on Iran? Does anyone really know anymore? We've had for so many years but China, now here's where it even, that, that relation, that ship you have with stories and narratives and, and the sense of psyche and the injury to the soul. Again, in one of its illustrious events, the American Jewish community, the American Jewish Committee, in June 14, has this major conference, where, as usual, the you know the Prime Minister of Germany speaks as the plenary address, as a keynote address. Michael Pompeo speaks in in the keynote address. You know, everyone is talking about how. Israel must be kept safe at all times, and you know, which again, I, I have no problem with keeping Israel safe as long as we give people their, their rights. But 
the parts that made me pause here is the head of the Muslim World Muslim World League, uh, Muhammad Al Isa. Muhammad Al Isa was invited to give a plenary address as well, and he gave a very nice plenary address. We. And in Islam, we don't have any problem with Jews, which is true. I absolutely agree that the Holocaust was an absolute moral abomination. It's true, and I absolutely agree. We are outraged by the Holocaust. Absolutely true, and I absolutely agree. Israel has a right to exist and be safe. Again, absolutely true, and I agree. So what is the problem? Well, the problem is that Muhammad Isa, in all the nice things he said about what Israel and Jews are entitled to, didn't once mention Palestinians. Didn't even pay lip service to the Palestinians, as if they are a non-entity, a non-people didn't mention the Muslims of China that are going through a Holocaust. Muhammad al-Isa says the Holocaust must never be permitted to reoccur anywhere in the world. And I agree, but it is occurring in China and against Muslims this time. Muhammad al-Isa and Rabbit al-Alam al-Islami did nothing about the Muslim, the, the Rohingyas in Burma. And it's doing nothing about Chinese Muslims. One of the pieces that Muhammad al-Isa said that just flipped me out. He says during that speech, Unfortunately, Jews and Muslims have, in recent years, have had a lot of misunderstandings, and I completely agree. There is no reason for Jews and Muslims to be hostile to one another. But he says that the reason for that to have happened, the reason that that occurred, is because in Islam there are people who mixed religion and politics. And this man is talking before the American Jewish Committee, an organization which regularly mixes religion with politics. The reason Muslims have not had a good track record with anti-Semitism, according to Muhammad al-Isa, is because they are confused, they, they messed up religion and politics. How about the Palestinians? How about the Chinese? How about the fact that you are talking to an organization that regularly plays a role in Islamophobia, in demonizing people who stand up for Palestinian rights, an 
organization that regularly weaves religion and culture and politics in ways that are very complex and ways that your simple mind, your draconian, dogmatic, simple mind cannot imagine or understand. I will say this again. We see what Israel is doing with the West Bank and the position of countries like Egypt and the Emirates and Saudi We see what China is doing with their concentration camps against Muslims and the position of countries like Egypt, the Emirates and Saudi And not just the moral legitimacy of countries like Egypt and Emirates to the point that today, if I see anything coming out of Dar al-Iftah al-Masriya or from Mashiachat al-Azhar in Egypt, I discount it. I'm not interested in anything they have to say about Islam. Nothing. They have completely lost their legitimacy to speak for the Islamic tradition or to even teach about anything that is related to Islam. But what is even much more serious is that I am increasingly feeling this way about the position of Saudi to the Hijaz and to the holy sites. Saudi is putting itself increasingly in a position where their supervision and guardianship over the holy sites is becoming illegitimate and unjustified and must be taken away from them because Al Saud have broken all the moral boundaries that could have justified Muslim silence vis-a-vis the custodian of these toxic people, the Al Sauds, towards the Hijaz. Reorient yourself towards this religion. Take this religion seriously because it is a treasure trove of values and morality and sophistication and ideas. Anchor, commit yourself to Islamic education and become a moral voice that speaks against the injustices and demonic toxicity that occurs in our modern world, especially when that immorality comes from fellow Muslims. If you do that, you will no longer wonder why you were put on this earth. You will be too busy to wonder about the purpose of your life or the meaning of your existence. You would live a meaningful, perhaps difficult, challenging life, but a meaningful moral life 
that Allah rewards you for and that at least you can honorably defend when you meet your God. Allahumma afa'anna. Allahumma khfir lana. Allahumma arhamna ya Rabbil Alameen. Allahumma ansur al-Islam wa a'izz al-Muslimin ya Rabbil Alameen. Allah forgive our sins. Guide us to the straight path. Help us, aid us in becoming better Muslims. In developing our love for you, Allah, and understanding you, Allah. And in becoming morally upright human beings that stand for justice and stand for meaning and beauty. And that resist and abhor evil in its all in its form, all in it all in all of its forms. You are the best guide and the most merciful and kind and compassionate. Ya Rabbil Alameen wa